This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Moving Forward in the Darkness. In the first half, J. Scott Miller shares his address, Humble Uncertainty. Then in the second half, Brianna M. Magnuson speaks on Revealing Questions. Students, one month of the semester is now past. For you beginning students, there is plenty of growth ahead, and I invite you to anticipate the time in a few years when you will assemble in this place wearing graduation robes to receive your degree. For those in the middle or finishing up, I invite you to look back on your experiences here and contemplate the value that attending college has added to your life. Now imagine if the second week of your first semester, feeling sorry for yourself, after failing a quiz, you had texted your parents about your doubts regarding college. Consider how great your relief and consolation would have been had they immediately driven to Provo, packed you up and taken you back home where a fake diploma, conveniently purchased online, was sitting on your bed along with a note reading, It's just a piece of paper anyway. I'm certain that the relief would have worn off rather quickly, especially as you came to realize that you would be living the rest of your life in their basement. College is anything but just a piece of paper. It's all about the unique experiences you have, the struggle and confrontation with weakness, the self-discovery and overcoming, the ripening and wisening, and especially the learning that will happen with roommates and part-time jobs as much as, if not more than, in class. Actually, life itself is very much like college. There may be times of fear when we wish for the tests and exams to be simplified or waived altogether and ignore the fact that life is a complex system designed by loving Heavenly Parents to make us into better people and to prepare us to confront an eternity of expanding opportunities. Sometimes when we pray to have our trials end quickly, we are like first-year students sending home pity-me texts and if God were to immediately grant our request, swoop in and rescue us, well, for us, eternity might just prove to be something of a basement experience. Instead, God, like other wise parents, knows that great things will come out of the difficulties and challenges we face because He knows our eternal identity. We, on the other hand, are clueless about that identity most of the time and live our lives forever perched on the edge of a dark, inscrutable path we call the future, uncertain of what it contains. We cannot see what lies ahead, and most of the time that makes it discouraging, if not utterly terrifying. This morning I would like to explore some ideas about how we might move forward into the future to become all that God knows we can become. One of the things I like most about my discipline of comparative literature is that it often brings together a variety of interesting works of literature under the same analytic microscope, often with very surprising results. In that spirit, I would like to share wisdom and beauty about facing our uncertain future from a Japanese writer and a British poet. Kaji Motojiro lived out his brief life at the beginning of the 20th century, facing the ever-present specter of an early death from tuberculosis. In one of his creative essays written in 1927 entitled A Picture Scroll of the Dark, he mentions reading about a Tokyo burglar who was successful for years because he developed the ability to rob houses in total darkness. 
Kaji contrasts that burglar with most of us who are quite helpless in the dark and describes how darkness represents a frightening boundary. Quote, The dark, therein we can discern nothing. Blackness shrouds all in thick, oppressive waves. Who can even think in such a state? How can we possibly move forward when there's no knowing what lies ahead? We have no other choice, however, but to proceed somehow, step by reluctant step, the first step fraught with pangs of distress, anxiety, terror. To take that step, we may have to muster the passionate desperation one needs to trample thistles with bare feet." The dread of that first step into the darkness and its inscrutable world can be quite distressing, as if one is about to stomp on prickly thistles with one's bare feet. The resolve or desperation required to take that step explains why it is often easier to stay in a well-lit room rather than enter the darkness and why most of us prefer to use flashlights when we walk in dark places. Although we often associate darkness with danger, ignorance, or evil, it makes up, on average, half of our lifetime and, as any astronomer will confirm, opens up to us billions of worlds. Our fear of the dark, however, makes us vulnerable and can even paralyze us. Kaji, who sets his essay at a time when he was convalescing at a remote spa town, saw darkness as a very palpable representation of his impending death. He decided to try to make peace with the darkness by willfully walking at night without a lantern, journeying home from his friend's inn alone in the gloom. He described some terrifying moments, yet he persisted in making his way upstream along a narrow roadway. As he repeated this journey night after night, his eyes began to open, literally and figuratively, as he saw poignant scenes of beauty in the darkness. The silhouette of trees against a star-filled sky, a nocturnal frog catching bugs beneath a street lamp, the odor of citrus leaves shredded by a rock he threw into the darkness. One scene in particular stands out, his discovery one evening, of a fellow traveler in the dark. Here's the passage. Quote, Along the way stood one solitary house with a tree in front. Bathed in light like a magic lantern, it alone shining luxuriantly in that immense, dark landscape. The roadway itself brightened slightly at the spot, but this made the shadows ahead even darker as they swallowed up the path. One evening, I noticed a man like me without a lantern walking farther up the road. I saw him because his figure suddenly appeared in the illuminated space in front of the house. The man, his back turned to the light, gradually receded into the darkness and vanished. I watched the entire scene moved in a strange, singular way. Stirred by the man's disappearing figure, I thought, in a short time I'll be walking into the darkness just like him. If someone were to stand here observing, they'd probably see me vanish the same way he did." Kaji had been discovering the hidden beauty of the dark on his own, but now sees someone else on the same dark path, ahead of him no less, walking without a lantern. He concludes that the pathway is anything but solitary, that there are others who choose to walk alone in the dark at night to discover its hidden aesthetic pleasures. As he watches the traveler disappear into the darkness, he considers, perhaps for the first time, that there could be others behind him for whom his sudden appearance and disappearance would be equally shocking, cheering, and instructive. 
Although there are many ways to read this encounter, I see it as one that inspires hope. Glimpsing someone ahead on the same path, Kaji discerns that as one can discover beauty and tranquility in darkness, so one can hope that there is an abundance of both light and beauty in that darkness we now fear as death. Our fear of the dark or our bias against it can blind us to a whole world of new and edifying experiences, and Kaji demonstrates the rewards of exercising faith as we move into uncertain futures. We may infer from this passage that things we fear have their positive sides, too, and that we should not be so consumed by our fears and uncertainties that we abandon hope and never move forward. There was a reason Moses, Lehi, and Brigham Young were all commanded to leave the comfort and security of more stable, civilized societies and strike off into the wilderness. That is where the burning bush, the Liahona, and Zion were awaiting them in our own lives, when we muster the faith to confront our doubts and fears by venturing forward into the dark unknown, we may come to learn that simple faith might be as fragile as starlight, but it can also guide our journey fixed as the North Star. We can discover similar insights about finding hope in darkness from an author contemporary to Kaji but living halfway around the world. T.S. Eliot was a British modernist writer whose poem East Coker published on Easter Sunday, 1940, deals with Eliot's conversion to Christianity in his thirties. Like Kaji venturing forth into the darkness in search of beauty, Eliot's poem describes searching for God in the stillness of the dark. Quote, I said to my soul, Be still, and let the dark come upon you, which shall be the darkness of God, as in a theater, the lights are extinguished for the scene to be changed." Unquote. Eliot suggests that the darkness of God is not an empty void, but rather a place of possibility, a brooding space in which endless opportunities line up, like being in a darkened theater waiting for the next act of a play. Our spiritual quest in life involves a series of journeys between zones of light and darkness, and Eliot describes a sense of dread as we move forward into the darkness of God in search of spiritual truth that parallels Kaji's initial observation. Quote, or as, when an underground train in the tube stops too long between stations, and the conversation rises and slowly fades into silence, and you see behind every face the mental emptiness deepen, leaving only the growing terror of nothing to think about. Eliot's passengers have grown so used to speeding forward in an artificially illuminated world that they begin to panic when faced with static darkness, a dread akin to what we might feel the moment we realize we left our phone at home and will be unable to access it for hours. As Eliot suggests, our overwhelming fear of the dark can be paralyzing, giving us the sense that we cannot even think. But he goes on to imply that some of our greatest learning opportunities happen in our darkest times. Rather than stand frozen in our fear, we may reach out and discover God in those dark moments. What do the observation of these two very different writers share in common? Both Kaji and Eliot use light and darkness as powerful metaphors for a kind of spiritual quest, moving from the known to the unknown, from the familiar and mundane to the hidden realms of possibility. Both authors also suggest that when we are always immersed in artificial light, we may come to expect answers to just appear all the time, accustomed as we are to the constant illumination. 
Hence the terror in the subway passengers' faces and our fear of stepping forward into the dark. Such fear may explain why we are reluctant at times to move forward along the path of spiritual growth that leads into the murkiness of things we do not know or things we doubt. To echo Kaji, how can we possibly move forward when there is no knowing what lies ahead? Perhaps, as Kaji notes, when we stand poised to test our faith once more by stepping forward into the void, we anticipate only prickly pain. Or perhaps, like Eliot's passengers whose minds go blank, we hesitate out of fear of spiritual emptiness, a growing terror of nothing to believe in. This state, often described as a crisis of faith, is more accurately a crisis of uncertainty. Crisis fueled by our confrontation with different kinds of doubt, all present at the moment we stand poised at the edge of our spiritual comfort zone, staring into the dark unknown. Although we often think of doubt simply as a synonym for willful disbelief, I would like to suggest that different kinds of doubt affect us in different ways. Let me describe three kinds. Two stunting doubts rooted in pride and fear, and a third soul-expanding doubt that is rooted in humility and faith. Observing other people applying faith in their lives can be an exhilarating experience. It can seem so natural and easy, like the performance of a virtuoso musician, that we forget the long hours of practice that went into acquiring the performer's skill. This was certainly the case when Oliver Cowdery was helping Joseph Smith translate the Book of Mormon. Oliver, a gifted teacher, must have felt eager to try his hand at the miracle of translation that Joseph, his former pupil, seemed to be doing with apparent ease. After inquiring of the Lord, Joseph gave Oliver the chance to try. And the result was one of the most instructive concepts in Latter-day Scripture. You must study it out in your own mind, then ask God for a response to your decision. In Oliver's case, this formula worked well until Oliver's fear undermined his ability to translate. The Lord did not condemn Oliver for his fear and, in fact, pointed out how he and Joseph formed a well-balanced translation team. Oliver, who exercised faith but did not get the same results Joseph did, spent a decade brooding over his inabilities and uncertainties and struggling with his pride in the face of Joseph's leadership before separating himself from the Church for a time. After wandering sideways, he once more returned to the comfort and blessings of his faith. The price he paid for yielding to his doubts and dropping out was high, however, given the wealth of spiritual manifestations and blessings he missed out on in his absence. When we doubt ourselves or God because our unique spiritual journey is different from that of others, or when our pride gets hurt in the day-to-day interactions with fellow wanderers along the path, we may, like Oliver, feel as though the lights have gone out and find ourselves fidgeting in our theater seats, not really sure what is going on or upset by what happened in the first act of the play. In our impatience or dissatisfaction, we may exit the theater too soon, abandoning our faith and the personal growth it will bring for some distracting sideshow. I call this crisis of uncertainty dropout doubt because we prematurely remove ourselves from our best opportunities to learn and grow. A second kind of doubt is akin to being compulsively afraid of the dark. In this case, we avoid acknowledging any uncertainty. Things we do not know or secretly fear might not be true or cannot be known at the present time and focus instead only on what we do know for certain. 
We conveniently ignore Alma's assertion that faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things. Being blinded by our own bias for certain knowledge, we can be blind as well to others' struggles, either because we pretend we have none or are afraid that their doubts will poison our tenuous faith. Such smugness can lead to self-righteousness or even persecution of others who are more in tune with their own limitations. By choosing to stay put in our secure but limited place, we are not actually practicing faith, but rather allowing it to lie dormant. Faith only materializes when we act upon it, move forward into the darkness one step at a time, relying upon the momentum and trajectory our faith sets for us. When we are afraid of our doubts, we are spiritually moving sideways because we are blind to our weaknesses and stymied by that blindness in our ability to strengthen others and feed Christ's sheep. This constitutes a crisis of both faith and humanity, or perhaps a crisis of faith in humanity, because it isolates us and prevents us from connecting and relieving one another's burdens. This was true of Zoram and his followers, whose Ramayumptam mantra revolved around their superiority. Their core beliefs had been cleanly excised of all faith-promoting uncertainties. No absent physical God, no future only begotten in the flesh, no doubt about one standing before God since all with money are saved, no guilt since they saw themselves as a chosen and holy people, no fear of error since God had elected them and hence they could not be led away. I should note that we do not yet have enough information to conclude whether their meetings were held in two- or three-hour blocks. When we avoid confronting doubt, our very fear of it can keep us from growing spiritually. Staring into the unknown, we may fear vulnerability so much that we ignore or even try to hide our weaknesses, restrict the range of our beliefs, and distance ourselves from those whose lives are complicated by trials and tribulations. I call this crisis of uncertainty denial doubt because we allow fear to block our progress. Dropout doubt and denial doubt proceed from pride and fear, limiting our growth and shrinking our faith. There is, however, a soul-expanding kind of doubt that proceeds from an attitude of humility, the species of humility that admits rather than denies our weakness. When we begin to see ourselves and our weaknesses clearly, we arrive at a state of vulnerability that is like that Joseph faced as he unwittingly prepared himself for the sacred grove. Troubled by his own weaknesses, Joseph was concerned about his standing before God, and as he sought reassurance, his study of local religions brought on other uncertainties, most important his question about which, if any, was true. Like Joseph Smith, our uncertainties are very often grounded in the personal and then proceed to the doctrinal. We feel our failures. We wonder about our status before God. We question if God really loves us and we try to find God. This is not an uncommon conversion pathway, one shared by early members of the Church in this dispensation and may be similar to yours as well. If we are honest about our own weaknesses, some of us may be more uncertain about ourselves than we are of the gospel, while others may emphasize doctrinal uncertainties to hide self-doubts. In both cases, the question, can we be true to it, may eclipse, can it be true? 
Satan plays on our nagging sense of unworthiness and self-doubt when he invites us to compare ourselves with others, a dissonance that social media profiles often amplify. At the core of self-doubt is a very real confrontation with the unknown darkness of who we really are, of our full potential. If we muster the faith to step on that particular thistle, to fully engage our own weaknesses as the Spirit reveals them to us, and in that humble state reach out to God in faith, we know that He will make weak things become strong unto us, that we will find beauty and hope in the darkness. If we are sincerely moving forward in our spiritual progress, then we should expect and even embrace opportunities to confront questions and uncertainties that humble us and help us to expand and strengthen our faith. God knows that, regardless of how powerful or effective our faith might have been in the past, each new experience in life requires that we draw upon our faith in a new way. Although we may have successfully exercised great faith and even seen miracles, The danger is very real that if we do not actively move forward again and exercise our faith on new challenges, we might grow too comfortable in our limited knowledge or even afraid to move forward into an uncertain future. In fact, we might risk becoming something like Napoleon Dynamite's Uncle Rico of faith-promoting experiences, reliving them rather than having new ones. (laughs) Given the dangers, self-satisfaction, or smugness posed to our growth potential, Life offers us plenty of puzzling hints, paradoxes, and contradictions to remind us we do not yet understand the big picture. Rather than caution us to avoid these mysteries, God encourages us to look closely and observe the world around us, study it carefully, things both in heaven and in the earth, all good books, languages, tongues, and people, as well as the wars and the perplexities of the nations. Along the way, we will have questions, need to have questions, and we'll come to understand, as in college, that the more we learn, the more we come to realize how little we actually know. It is when we combine humility about the limits of our knowledge with honest questions about life's perplexities that we demonstrate the kind of humble uncertainty that will expand our souls. I would like to further illustrate this notion with a personal story about one of my own crises of uncertainty. It happened one summer in my mid-teens when I was working at a remote wilderness scout camp, a welcome refuge from the turmoil at home where my parents were divorcing. I lived alone in a tent and would often take my proto-iPod, a portable cassette tape player, out with me at night to a hillside overlooking the lake and play music while watching the stars and contemplating my tiny place in the cosmos. Sometimes I would even try walking to and from my destination without a flashlight, especially if the night sky was clear and the moon was bright, a journey that was equally thrilling and frightening and that helped me relate to Kaji when I read his essay years later. I would begin and end the day in my tent, reading from the Book of Mormon, and despite my inner turmoil, felt a growing reassurance from the words I read. Many evenings after dinner, some of the older, more worldly staff at the camp would air their grievances about the Church, critique random Church leaders, parrot the cynical views of their worldly professors, and generally trash people and sacred practices I held dear. I've come to learn that this is just what some people do after dinner. But at the time, what they said was news to me, and I felt compelled to listen. Sometimes I tried to challenge their views, but that put me in the uncomfortable role of antagonist, not a good fit for someone my age 
and height. And so I mostly just listened, mulling over their critiques. I quickly saw that buying into their cynicism meant my own faith would be at risk. Underlying the unsettling things I heard in the dining hall were my own nagging doubts about my personal flaws and failures. These revolved around new challenges I faced learning to teach unruly scouts, but more poignantly around my growing awareness of personal weaknesses that our family problems brought to the fore. Confronting the terrible darkness of personal and doctrinal uncertainty, I decided to pray, framing my question simply, Is the Church really true? Behind that question was an implied one. Can I really be true to the Church? When the answer finally came, after some period of tension and suspense, it was not in the form of a yes or a no answer but came by deep and profound feelings, feelings of love, inner peace, and well-being, and the singular and distinct impression that my soul was eternal. That wholly unexpected answer taught me how little I know about the nature of our existence in general and about God's all-encompassing love in particular. It became an inseparable part of how I have come to interact with others and with the world. My life since then has been punctuated by sporadic moments of humble uncertainty, followed by answers to prayer I do not expect, answers that reveal the narrowness of my unreasonable expectations and that can transform me into something better than I know. Now, there is nothing so exciting as watching someone learn and grow. As any parent can testify, God feels the same way and has set up a plan to allow us all to pass our mortal schooling. God does not grade on a bell curve. In fact, God's plan depends upon us making mistakes. He wants us to explore the full dimension of life, both daylight and nighttime, walking in the light of faith and making our way through periods of uncertainty. Alexander Pope has noted that a little learning is a dangerous thing. It is sometimes easy in the process of learning to assume that our inadequate words or incomplete powers of reason are sufficient to describe and measure the entire cosmos. But when it comes to really understanding creation, as Joseph Smith said, we are as a babe on its mother's lap. We miss opportunities for discovery when we focus only on the light of what we know and are afraid to explore what lies beyond that familiarity. Likewise, when we do make mistakes or stumble in the dark, it is tempting to retreat to our parents' basement or to abandon our journey altogether. Eliot concludes his poem, East Coker, with the following insight about the conversion process. Quote, we must be still and still moving into another intensity for a further union, a deeper communion. In my end is my beginning. Unquote. The poet eloquently captures the essence of our challenge to grow spiritually. We must be still, as in silent, waiting hopefully and patiently in the dark, and still moving into another intensity, proceeding apace toward a union with God and communion with fellow saints who are also walking in the darkness, propelled forward by faith. The end of the lighted path marks the beginning of our spiritual journey. To make progress is to face the darkness. 
Like Kaji, as we muster the courage and the faith to walk forward into that darkness, I know that despite our fear and the challenge of there being no knowing what lies ahead, we will discover beauty as we never suspected, as well as fellow travelers. Indeed, as we allow our faith to propel us forward beyond the boundary of our current limited knowledge into a humble uncertainty, we can discover greater things illuminated by the dim light of our faith, even Christ walking ahead of us, showing us the way forward and providing answers we do not expect. This drama will play out over and over again in our lives if we are on the right path, because such transformative experience is at the heart of all true learning and wisdom. Eliot's poem describes the range of our responsibility in this process. For us, there is only the trying. It is a principle of growth and an article of my personal faith that trying, always trying, will ultimately bring us to the knowledge we seek, that we may have the faith to continue stepping humbly into the uncertain void, transcending our own feeble understanding, and through faith and endurance behold the marvels and beauties of all creation, is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Moving Forward in the Darkness. We've just heard from J. Scott Miller. After the break, we'll return with Brianna M. Magnuson for Revealing Questions. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Moving Forward in the Darkness. Next is Brianna M. Magnuson, Associate Professor of Public Health in the BYU College of Life Sciences at the time of this address, titled Revealing Questions. We are only about two weeks into the beginning of the spring term here on campus. Many of you are current students, and those of you who have completed this period of your life probably still remember what it's like to walk into a fresh new classroom at the beginning of the semester or term. The gap between what you know now and what you need to know to do well in the course is often large, perhaps overwhelming. A university education requires that you learn many different subjects. Some of these will come naturally to you. Some of these you will never feel quite confident about. Some subjects will be exciting and engaging, and others you will vow never to visit willingly. Regardless of the subject, you know from the beginning that success will require you to work, usually to work hard. You will have an instructor to guide you, and she will provide you with things to read, assignments that make you think, and exams that allow you to prove yourself. You may have teaching assistants who can help you, and of course you have the assistance of the instructor. This model of classroom learning also applies to our mortal life. Elder Robert D. Hales taught, The purpose of our life on earth is to grow, develop, and be strengthened through our own experiences. Similarly, the purpose of learning in the classroom is to grow in knowledge, develop skills, and to be strengthened in our understanding as we work diligently to acquire new knowledge and abilities. In Abraham chapter 3, verse 25, we read, And we will prove them herewith, to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. 
Just as you must eventually submit to examinations or other assessments to prove your learning in the classroom, we must submit to repeated tests and challenges in our earthly lives. These trials allow us to prove that we are progressing in our mortal journey, and they may be particularly intense periods of growth. Much as students ramp up their efforts to study when an exam is looming, the experience of a spiritual test can heighten our own efforts to learn from the Lord. To fulfill the purpose of learning and gaining experience, it was essential that as we were born onto the earth, we passed through a veil. In so doing, we came to earth having forgot all that occurred before. This is perhaps one of the most challenging things about our lives. Because we are restricted with mortal eyes, there is much about the eternal perspective and the purposes and timing of God that we do not understand. In the same way as we approach a new subject in a classroom, the instructor has a broader perspective, being able to see how all of the material fits together and how it connects to broader fields of knowledge in a way that we usually cannot in the beginning. The story of Ignaz Simmelweis illustrates some concepts about questions, learning, and answers. I assume this story is familiar to many of you. As a woman and an epidemiologist, I count Dr. Semmelweis among my heroes. In 1847, Dr. Semmelweis, a Hungarian physician, was working as the chief resident in an Austrian medical clinic. There are many versions of this story in which the details vary, but the crux of the story is that Dr. Simmelweis observed that approximately 10% of women who delivered their babies in his clinic, known as the first clinic, died of childbed fever. We now know that childbed fever is an infection of the female reproductive organs caused by strep bacteria. However, in the mid-1800s, the cause of childbed fever was a mystery. Dr. Simmelweis was first alerted to the potential ability to reduce deaths from childbed fever when he observed that the second maternity clinic, which was staffed primarily by midwives, had a much lower rate of childbed fever deaths, about 4%. Even more shocking, women giving birth in the streets of Vienna were even less likely to contract childbed fever. Dr. Simmelweis undertook a rigorous study of the differences between the two clinics and for many months could not isolate a potential cause. The breakthrough occurred through tragedy. A friend and fellow physician of the clinic named Jakob was participating with students in a post-mortem examination. During the exam, Jakob was accidentally cut with a scalpel. Within a few days, he was dead, dying from a disease that produced the same signs and symptoms and seemed to follow the same natural course as childbed fever. Following this tragedy, Dr. Simmelweis theorized that something from the cadaver was being carried on the physician's hands to the maternity ward and proposed that the physician should begin washing their hands with a chlorinated lime solution. This would be similar to a modern-day bleach solution. Although he was met with much resistance from the hospital staff, he enacted a policy and as a result of the policy, a miraculous decline in childbed fever deaths occurred, dropping nearly 90% in a few weeks. Despite the astounding evidence that this simple act of handwashing could save the lives of so many women, Dr. Simmelweis's theory was rejected by his peers. In 1847, when Dr. Simmelweis undertook his investigations of childbed fever, most people in the world believed that disease was caused by a miasma. Specifically, that rotting organic matter polluted the air, and this polluted air spread disease. His finding fully contradicted the prevailing model of disease causation, which meant that he could neither explain why a physician going from a post-mortem exam to the maternity ward could transmit childbed fever, nor could he explain why handwashing reduced the rate of disease. 
Dr. Simmelweis had proven with his experiment that handwashing worked, but because he lacked the explanatory details, he could not convince his peers to trust him or the data. The other physicians simply felt that handwashing was too difficult and too time-consuming. They certainly were not about to change their practice without a complete explanation. The germ theory of disease, which would provide a rationale for handwashing, would not become widely accepted until after 1880. Dr. Simmelweis died in 1865 and would not live to see the scientific confirmation of his theory. Although he would die without seeing his work validated or adopted, Dr. Simmelweis never questioned what the data has shown him and never abandoned his efforts to persuade others to adopt handwashing. Perhaps the saddest part of Dr. Semmelweis's story is to consider the number of women who died and the number of children who grew up without their mothers due to the unwillingness of his contemporaries to accept a truth they could not explain. Spiritual knowledge may operate the same way. When we receive confirmation of truth through personal revelation, we may be met with opposition from our contemporaries because we cannot explain how or why something is. Just as Dr. Simmelweis had to trust his experience, we must trust our experience of revelation and trust in God as we wait for more to be revealed. Our scientific understanding has grown by leaps and bounds since the days of Dr. Simmelweis, but there is still more scientific truth to be discovered. Some of you are currently participating in research that is expanding our understanding. Similarly, our understanding of spiritual truths has grown exponentially since the day that Joseph Smith knelt in the sacred grove. Yet despite all that has been revealed, we know that there is still more. The Ninth Article of Faith says, We believe all that God has revealed, all that he does now reveal, and we believe that he will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. We believe he will yet reveal many great and important things. This promise of pending revelation tells us that the process of revelation is ongoing and that things we do not yet know will someday be known. Personal revelation is the ongoing and lifelong process of thinning the veil that separates us from our Father in heaven. Revelation increases our capacity to understand spiritual things and expands our knowledge. Because our Father in Heaven wants us to succeed, He has provided for us the scriptures and teachings of the prophets to help us. We have peers, teachers, and church leaders with whom we can discuss these materials. We have a living prophet, the gift of the Holy Ghost, and most importantly, we have access to our Father in Heaven through prayer. Just like learning in the classroom, success in acquiring spiritual knowledge will require diligent and effortful work. As we strive to expand our spiritual knowledge, questions about policies, procedures, or principles come to us all. Elder Hales wrote, As we grow in the gospel, it is natural to have questions and sometimes even doubts. Genuine questions can actually fuel our spiritual growth. Dr. Semmelweis made an observation, and this observation concerned him. His scientific discovery occurred in the way that many do. He saw something he could not explain, and he asked a question. This question eventually led to an answer. Spiritual discovery, or revelation, also begins this way. We observe or encounter something we do not understand, and we begin to ask questions. 
Questions can serve as the starting point for receiving personal revelation. Gospel questions may also arise from the influence of competing voices. Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf stated, Never in the history of the world have we had easier access to more information. Some of it true, some of it false, and much of it partially true. Consequently, never in the history of the world has it been more important to learn how to correctly discern between truth and error. In his most recent General Conference address, President Russell M. Nelson taught, If we are to have any hope of sifting through the myriad of voices and the philosophies of men that attack truth, we must learn to receive revelation. When we have questions or concerns about the gospel, seeking revelation on the subject should be our most important objective. Questions, particularly questions that arise about the gospel, can be particularly trying. Questions are inherently born of uncertainty, and we as humans are vehemently opposed to uncertainty. We dislike the feeling of not knowing because we feel vulnerable. Yet this vulnerability can actually be a sacred space. I have been learning an important lesson about living with uncertainty and vulnerability over the past several years. When my parents divorced 13 years ago, I experienced an earth-shattering shift in my faith. Although I was already an adult, the shift in the structure of my family was difficult. Suddenly nothing seemed like it was quite right anymore. Prior to the divorce, I was already in a pretty fragile place emotionally and spiritually. I had graduated from college and was working on my master's degree, but I did not yet feel settled. I felt like I was existing in some no-man's land. I felt lost, unsure of what I should do. The divorce amplified that feeling as the family structure I was accustomed to disappeared. This was a significant trial in my life, and throughout this experience I began to question my faith. In particular, I struggled significantly with testimony meetings. I would listen to the testimonies of others, and almost without exception, they contained the phrase, I know. I know that God lives. I know the Book of Mormon is true. I know, I know, I know. But the problem was I didn't know. I believed in God. I believed the Book of Mormon was scripture. I believed that Jesus died for me. I believed in prophets, but I could not say with confidence I knew. At least not the way it seemed that everybody else could. I was deep in the grasp of uncertainty. I honestly believe that for some people, maybe even lots of people, they have received personal knowledge of the things they bear testimony of, but for me this knowledge did not come. I have had a handful of powerful revelatory experiences in my life, and because of this I knew God was aware of me and that he was guiding my life. But this seems so much less than the confident testimonies I heard from others. I went through a period of years feeling uncomfortable at church, feeling that I didn't belong. There were periods when it really felt so much easier to be anywhere but church. I was blessed with good friends and supportive family during this period who helped me navigate. It didn't happen right away. But over time I came to the conclusion that the only way to manage this uncertainty was to walk through it. So I began to explore and to study. I opened the scriptures and I read the words of the prophets, but I also read other good books on religious topics. I began to have whispered conversations in safe spaces where I could express my uncertainty. Through my study and conversations, I learned that my experience was more common than rare. During this period, I encountered the following scripture in Alma 32, 16 through 18, which reads, 
Therefore, blessed are they who humble themselves without being compelled to be humble. Or rather, in other words, blessed is he that believeth in the word of God, and is baptized without stubbornness of heart, yea, without being brought to know the word, or even compelled to know before they believe. Yea, there are many who do say, If thou wilt show unto us a sign from heaven, then we shall know of a surety, then we shall believe. Now I ask, is this faith? Behold, I say unto you, Nay. For if a man knoweth a thing, he hath no cause to believe, for he knoweth it. I grew up in the church. I attended four years of early morning seminary and four years of religion classes at BYU. I could recite to you this and other definitions of faith. But before this time, I had not separated belief and faith as being different from a sure knowledge. This witnessed to me that it was absolutely okay to be unsure and still choose to believe. This, after all, was the essence of faith. Later in my journey, I was introduced to Doctrine and Covenants 46.13, which reads, To some is given to believe on their words, that they may also have eternal life if they continue faithful. I was familiar with this chapter, but somehow I had always missed this. To believe was a spiritual gift, just as was knowledge gained through the Holy Ghost mentioned in verse 13 of the same section. When I began this account, I said I was learning this lesson. Over the last five or so years, I have become increasingly comfortable with exercising faith in the uncertainty, but this is still a process. I am learning that these feelings of vulnerability, though uncomfortable, help me to be more in touch with the Spirit as I continue to walk through this vulnerability, I am growing closer to my Savior. The answers to our questions will come to us through personal revelation. As children of God, we have the privilege of seeking revelation to direct us in our growth and decision-making. Elder Uchtdorf taught, Latter-day Saints are not asked to blindly accept everything they hear. We are encouraged to think and discover truth for ourselves. We are expected to ponder, to search, to evaluate, and thereby to come to a personal knowledge of the truth. Much as I expect my students to read, study, and to participate in class as they seek understanding of the course material, our Heavenly Father expects us to read and to study and to practice faith as we seek revelation. Learning to receive personal revelation is a process of preparation and consistent effort. Sister Julie B. Beck stated, The ability to qualify for, receive, and act on personal revelation is the single most important skill that can be acquired in this life. One of the reasons I love this quote is that Sister Beck talks about personal revelation as a skill. Like all skills, practice improves performance. President Nelson has taught us how to begin developing this skill. Find a quiet place where you can regularly go. Humble yourself before God. Pour out your heart to your Heavenly Father. Turn to Him for answers and for comfort. Pray in the name of Jesus Christ about your concerns, your fears, your weaknesses, yes, the very longing of your heart, and then listen. Write the thoughts that come to your mind. Record your feelings and follow through with actions that you are prompted to take. As you repeat this process, day after day, month after month, year after year, you will grow into the principle of revelation. Even with our best efforts, not all questions will be answered quickly, and some questions may not be fully answered until we have again passed through the veil. 
Elder Jeffrey R. Holland once stated, Some blessings come soon, some come late, and some don't come until heaven. But for those that embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, they come. I believe that we can apply this idea to our search for answers. Some answers come soon, some come late, and some don't come until heaven. But for those who embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, they come. Sometimes when a student asks a question in class, the complete answer is too complicated to be given at that time. Perhaps we've not yet covered the background information for it to be understandable. Perhaps the answer would take us far beyond the scope of the course. In such situations, I must often ask my students to trust me. This is similar to the experience a parent might have when a toddler inquires about the necessity of green beans. A toddler does not yet have the developmental capacity to understand the whole answer to the question of why we need to eat green beans. So a parent asks a child to trust them and perhaps gives part of the answer. Green beans help our bodies grow healthy and strong. It's not the entire story, but it's enough for now. As a child grows and develops, a more complete explanation can be given. Answers to our spiritual questions may come in similar fashion. It is my experience that when I am wrestling with a question that the answers may come here a little, there a little. I believe one of the reasons for this is that I have not yet acquired all of the background knowledge or achieved the state of spiritual development in which I am capable of receiving and understanding the complete answer. It may also be that waiting for a response is an important part of the learning process. In my situation, had the Lord immediately responded to my questions with sure knowledge, I would not be learning the value of walking in faith. Other times, answers or guidance is slow in coming at all. Elder Hale stated, We may not know when or how the Lord's answers will be given, but in His time and His way, I testify His answers will come. For some answers, we may have to wait until the hereafter. This may be true for some promises in our patriarchal blessings and for some blessings for family members. Let us not give up on the Lord. His blessings are eternal, not temporary. In situations where it seems an answer is being withheld, our Heavenly Father is asking us to trust Him, to hang on a little longer, to be faithful, to be patient, to wait. The scriptures issue the invitation to wait upon the Lord. I have generally thought about waiting as an idle activity. When I am waiting in line at the grocery store or waiting for something to occur, I will admit that I am very likely to be wasting my time. I might be browsing Facebook or scrolling through the news. However, we must never think about waiting on the Lord as an idle activity. Elder Hale stated, What then does it mean to wait upon the Lord? In the scriptures, the word wait means to hope, to anticipate, and to trust. To hope and trust in the Lord requires faith, patience, humility, meekness, long-suffering, keeping the commandments, and enduring to the end. To wait upon the Lord means planting the seed of faith and nourishing it with great diligence and patience. When we wait upon the Lord, we should be actively engaged in keeping the commandments and surrounding ourselves with the Spirit. Leading up to the first vision, Joseph Smith was surrounded by a religious fervor. At this particular time in history, there was a revival among Christian denominations. As these various denominations debated their relative values, divisions between the people grew. I imagine that this scene was probably not all that different from what we see happening in our world today. 
Although today's divisions are as likely to be caused by political or social debate as religious debate, we also see great division among the people. This part of the story is well known to most members of the church. Joseph, being a serious young man, set about reading the scriptures. And in his words, he says, While I was laboring under the extreme difficulties caused by the contests of these parties of religionists, I was one day reading the epistle of James. Now, the second part of this scripture you can probably recite from memory, but I want to pause a second to examine what we know from this small section. I do not know how much time passed from his initial exposure to these different religious sects until the day he was reading in James. But given that he says he was laboring under extreme difficulties, I imagine that his struggle to understand and his search for direction likely persisted for several weeks or perhaps months. We sometimes make the mistake of thinking that Joseph received a near-immediate response to his inquiry. But carefully evaluating the scripture suggests that the vision itself came only after some period of pondering and studying the scriptures. A couple of verses later, Joseph says, At length I came to the conclusion. This is another indication that even stumbling upon the scripture in James did not result in an immediate understanding of how to act. Rather, it suggests that he spent some time, perhaps hours or even days, pondering how to apply the scripture. Although the Lord may sometimes ask us to trust him and to wait upon him, President Nelson taught, the invitation to trust the Lord does not relieve us from the responsibility to know for ourselves. This is more than an opportunity. It is an obligation, and it is one of the reasons we were sent to earth. Questions may be a natural consequence of spiritual growth, but we have a duty to do what is within our power to answer them. The opportunity for further revelation is enhanced when we humbly remember the witnesses of the Spirit we have already received. In the sacrament prayers, we witness that we will always remember Him. Without doubt, we are promising to remember the beautiful sacrifice of our beloved Savior. But I believe we should also strive to always remember the tender confirmations of the Spirit. Earlier we discussed that the purpose of our life was to grow, develop, and be strengthened through experiences. Although our Heavenly Father intends for us to be happy and find joy, it is often true that our periods of significant growth will be accompanied by hard things. Spiritual strength is built in much the way that our physical strength is built, through adversity. Three years ago, I decided that it was time for me to establish an exercise routine. Although I had participated in cardiovascular exercise on and off my entire life, I had never seriously pursued strength training. With the help of my very patient personal trainer, over the course of three years, I have developed some serious muscles, and my endurance has improved. Although I can recognize now the physical strength I have gained, getting up for a 5 a.m. gym appointment is terrible every single time. I complain a lot during my workouts, and I've been known to attempt to negotiate with my trainer. Perhaps I have not yet learned to endure adversity well. Adversity, like 4.30 wake-up calls and deadlifts, can reduce my ability to remember how grateful I am for my stronger, healthier body. Similarly, challenging circumstances in our lives and trials of faith can diminish our remembrance of previously revealed truth. Adversity comes to us all, even the most righteous among us. We must be careful not to allow adversity to erase our memory of spiritual experiences. 
While I was a student here at BYU nearly 20 years ago, Elder Holland gave what was for me a life-changing devotional address. It was an address that struck me so powerfully at the time that I can still tell you exactly where I was sitting, in a lecture hall of the Benson Building, watching the devotional being broadcast from the Marriott Center. This address, entitled Cast Not Away Therefore Your Confidence, has remained a staple in my gospel study for these last two decades. Each time I read it, I am reminded to always remember the tender feelings of the Spirit. In that address, Elder Holland, referring to the adversity that inevitably accompanies significant revelation, said, Don't panic and retreat. Don't lose your confidence. Don't forget how you once felt. Don't distrust the experience you had. I hope that you have had experiences with the spirit of revelation. Although you may not have seen grand miracles, I hope that you have felt the tender feelings of the Holy Ghost comforting you and confirming truth to you. I have never had an angel appear to me, and I suspect I never will. But I have felt the confirming witness of the Holy Ghost. My search for truth and understanding is not over. I hope that I have another 50 or so years to walk the earth and continue my quest to learn the mysteries of God. I hope in this time that I will receive answers to questions I wrestle with now. President Nelson said, In the coming days, it will not be possible to survive spiritually without the guiding, directing, comforting, and constant influence of the Holy Ghost. It's difficult for me to imagine a stronger statement from our prophet on the importance of personal revelation. Given this emphasis, I imagine we all have some work to do to increase our capacity to hear and feel the Spirit speaking to us. President Nelson continues, I urge you to stretch beyond your current spiritual ability to receive personal revelation. For the Lord has promised, If thou shalt seek, thou shalt receive revelation upon revelation, knowledge upon knowledge, that thou mayest know the mysteries and the peaceable things, that which bringeth joy, that which bringeth life eternal. I pray that you will heed the call of the prophet and choose to do the spiritual work required to enjoy the gift of the Holy Ghost and hear the voice of the Spirit more frequently and more clearly. I testify that the Lord is aware of you, of your needs, and of your questions. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Moving Forward in the Darkness, with thoughts from J. Scott Miller and Brianna M. Magnuson. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.